The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Verses 14 and 15 in the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now those who are looking at the revised version, or who may happen to have the standard, revised standard version, will notice that there were words in this authorized version which you haven't got. You've got, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, of whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Now here the apostle takes up a, a matter which he had obviously intended to take up at the beginning of the chapter, as we saw when we were looking at the first verse. You notice that the first verse starts with the words, For this cause, so does this fourteenth verse. He was uh, about to say what he now goes on to say beyond this fifteenth verse. But you remember that in describing uh, himself, he went off onto a digression in which he dealt in that majestic and marvelous way with his whole calling as an apostle. And he did that, as we've been seeing, for the reason that he gives in the 13th verse, where he says, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now that was a great digression, as we've seen a very valuable one, and one which is full of lessons for us. But it was a digression from the main purpose and object which the apostle had in his mind at this particular point in this letter. But having finished that statement, back he comes again to the thing that he originally intended to say. And therefore, this expression for this cause, here in verse 14, as in verse 1, links us on to what he'd been saying at the end of the second chapter. And uh, therefore, we must uh, be very careful in our exposition of the statement that we're now going to look at, that it does connect with what he has been saying there. And you remember that the essence of that point was that he has been showing these Ephesians how they have been brought into a state of complete unity in the Christian church with the Jews that had also believed the gospel. There was a time when they had been right outside. They were in time past aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now he says in verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together, for an habitation of God through the Spirit. That exalted conception and description which he gives us there of the Christian church, you remember. Now then, for this cause, 
for that reason, in the light of that truth, he now is going on, he tells them, uh, to pray for them. Now, uh, the connection, obviously, is something that is very vital for us to bear in mind. It is only, in a sense, as we realize what he has been saying, that we can possibly understand uh, what he is now going to say. This uh, further truth, this prayer that he is now going to offer uh, for these Ephesians arises because of their position as fellow citizens with the saints and as members of the household of God, as children of God, belonging to God's family, and as this holy temple in the Lord in which God takes up his habitation through the Spirit. Very well, then, bearing all that in our minds for this cause, what is he going to do? Well, he tells them. He prays for them. I bow my knees unto the Father. Now, all I want to do this morning is to make a number of comments upon uh, the way in which the Apostle here introduces this uh, great prayer that he offers uh, for these Ephesians. The first thing that I therefore have to emphasize is the fact that he does pray for them. And uh, taking it in its setting, this is something that is of very great value to us. When the Apostle was writing this letter, he was a prisoner. It's one of the prison epistles. He was probably a prisoner in Rome. Doesn't matter where it was, the fact is that he was a prisoner. And therefore you see what he's saying in effect is this. That though he is a prisoner, though a malignant enemy has arrested him and has put him into bonds and has made it impossible for him to visit them at Ephesus and to preach to them or to go anywhere else to preach, Though the enemy has the power to restrict his physical movements and to put many restraints upon his ministry and his activity, there is one thing that the enemy cannot do, and that is he cannot stop him praying. He can still pray. The enemy can confine him to a cell. He can bolt and bar doors. He can chain him to soldiers. He can put bars in the windows. He can hem him in and shut him down. But there is one thing that he can never do. And that is, I say, he can never obstruct the way from the heart of the humblest believer to the heart of the eternal God. Now, I'm not at all sure, but that at this moment in history, this isn't one of the most comforting and consoling truths we can ever look at together. Think of what this means probably to hundreds, not to say thousands, of Christian people in various parts of the world this morning. They're in prison. They may be in concentration camps. They may be hemmed in and tied down in almost every respect that men can commend. But thank God we can still assert that stone walls do not a prison make nor iron bars a cage. The spirit of the believer is still free and shines gloriously, whether he's in prison or at liberty. 
Here is a man then, I say, uh, who himself is thus confined externally and physically, but who, as it were, thrills with this contemplation that he still has perfect liberty of speech to God. Men may prohibit us to speak with our lips, with our mouths, with our tongues. But even when they've done that, and if they stitched our lips together, you can still go on praying in your spirit, still go on praying to God. And therefore, I hold this before you, not only for its comfort, but also that we may realize that it is something that is always applicable to us, whatever our circumstances and conditions may chance to be. There are times when, as Christians, we seem to be in some sort of a prison. We may be hemmed in and tied down, maybe by illness, some physical weakness, circumstances, Many things may happen to prevent us from coming to the house of God or of mingling with others. Christian people often find themselves in some such circumstance or condition. Well, let us, I say, remember this. That whatever circumstances or men in his evil may do to us, there is always open to us this particular ministry, this particular activity. And nothing need ever hinder that. In other words, you may find yourself ill and confined to a sick bed. It doesn't mean that you're useless for the time being. It doesn't mean that you can do nothing. You can still go on praying. You can pray for yourself. You can pray for others. You can be taking part in a great ministry of intercession. Now, this is something I think we tend to forget. We have become a generation of Christians that, uh, in a sense, uh, tend to live on meetings. It's an odd thing to say at a time when church attendance is poor, I know, but nevertheless I think it is true that those who do attend tend to depend upon their attendance and to feel, therefore, that when they're laid on their beds in sickness that there's nothing that they can do and they've just got to wait until they get well. It's an utter fallacy. Here was a man who was tremendously busy in prison. He spent his time, it seems to me, in praying for these different churches. You read these prison epistles and you'll find that he says he's praying constantly, he's praying daily for them. He was occasionally able to send them a letter now and again. Not many, there are very few of them. But he was surrounding all the churches with his prayer, praying for individuals in them. He was exercising a great ministry, not the usual type. The man was a preacher an evangelist, an incomparable teacher. And yet, you see, he doesn't say, oh, well, of course, I can do nothing now. I just languish in prison and hope that somehow or another I'll be set free. Not at all. This tremendous activity is going on. Now, I say we must all remember that. And oh, how much there is to pray for at the present time. With the world as it is, and Christian people suffering as they are, Shall I ask a simple and an obvious question, therefore? How much of our time are we giving day by day now to the Christians in Hungary and these other countries? We've got the time, we've got the leisure, we are not even in prison. We've got time to do many things that are not at all essential. 
How much time are we giving to intercession and to prayer for these people? We are called to it, my brethren. We are, to call, we are called to bear one another's burdens, to share in one another's woes. Those of you who have leisure, I say, therefore, give your leisure to this. Here's a man who did it in prison with everything against him. Let us, I say, hear this call to prayer. As Paul knew that he could help those Ephesians by praying for them, we can help people, people we've never met, perhaps. But we know that they are suffering at this very hour. They're in trouble in various respects. Let us, I say, spend time at the throne of grace on their behalf. But let me hurry on to a second point, which is this. Prayer, we are reminded here by the Apostle, is always as necessary as is instruction. Now, I mean by that just this, that it would be a very great fallacy if we got the impression that the Apostle was only praying for these Ephesians because he couldn't preach to them. I have emphasized that he was praying to them in one sense because he couldn't preach to them, but I want to make it equally plain and clear that that isn't his only reason for praying for them, that if he were at liberty, he would still be praying for them. And it isn't merely because he's physically incapable of visiting them and teaching them in a more active manner. Now, here again is a principle which seems to me to be somewhat neglected by us all. It is as essential that we should pray for ourselves as it is that we should instruct ourselves. We believe we need instruction. We read our Bibles. We meditate over them. We read books about the Bibles. We read commentaries. We read books on church history. We read books on doctrine. And it's all right, it's all absolutely essential. We can never know too much. We need instruction. We need enlightenment. That's what this epistle was written for, in order to instruct these Ephesians in doctrine, as we've been seeing. The apostle believes that doctrine is essential. Instruction must have a kind of first priority. But to impart the knowledge is not enough. It is equally essential that we should pray. Pray for ourselves that we may be made receptive of the knowledge and instruction. Pray that we may be enabled to harness it and to apply it. Pray that it may not stop merely in our minds, but that it may grip our hearts and bend our wills and affect the whole men. Now then, I say that is something that is very obvious in the teaching here as it is everywhere else. Knowledge and instruction and prayer must always go together and they must never be separated. I, I've said it is necessary for us ourselves. It is equally necessary for us in our dealings with others. Now that's the thing that is most prominent here, of course. Here is a man writing this rich, profound doctrine. He knows they're going to read it, and they're going to study it together, and they're going to discuss it together. Yes, but he knows that that isn't enough. He now is going to pray that all this may be made real to him. For it never can be made real to them, except under the direct blessing of God. The greatest teaching in the world is useless unless the Holy Spirit takes hold of it and applies it.
and opens our understanding and gives it a deep lodging place in our being. Now, this man never forgot that. We've already seen in the first chapter how he'd been praying for them that the eyes of their understanding may be enlightened. For if the Holy Spirit didn't open the eyes of their understanding, even Paul's teaching would be quite useless and vile. Now, this is a very practical point for us all. We've all got friends who are not Christians, and we are concerned about them. And uh, we want to help them. And we talk to them about these things. We quote scriptures to them. We explain them. We try to show them the whole Christian attitude and position to the present conditions and all these things. That's right. That's excellent. We must do that. But I'm emphasizing that if you leave it at that alone, it may very well come to nothing. You can't reason anybody into the Christian life. You can give the reasons, but you can't reason them into it. You can put the case before them, but you can never prove it as if it were a matter of, of a theorem in geometry or something like that. No, no. We must realize the whole time that as we are instructing, we must be praying for them. It is only as the Holy Spirit deals with them and prepares them and opens them that they can receive the truth. So, you see, the apostle is perfectly consistent with his own doctrine. He knows that it was as essential that he should pray for these Ephesians as it was that he should send them the great instruction. And you and I, I say, must never forget that. If you are interested in a particular person and that person's salvation, you must not stop just at befriending him and helping him and spending time with him and putting the things before him. You must pray quite as much for him. And indeed, I would go so far as to say this, that unless you are relying more upon your prayer than your instruction, your work is likely to be a failure. Now then, work that out for yourselves. Do it in this way. Notice the place that is given to intercessory prayer in the teaching of the New Testament. It's extraordinary. It's quite amazing. This great man, this Apostle Paul, was very dependent upon the prayers of others. He pleads with them to pray for him. You'll see it in his letters to the Corinthians, in his letter to the Philippians, Pray for me, he says, pray for us that we may have a door of opportunity, that we may have liberty and so on. He, he was in prison and he said, your prayers helping, I am hopeful that I may be set at liberty. He was dependent and realized his dependence upon the prayers of others. Of course, I know that in one respect this is a great mystery. You say God is all-powerful, there's nothing he can't do. Why, therefore, is there any need of prayer? The answer to that is this, that God has chosen in his own eternal wisdom to work in this way. He divides up the work. He, somehow or another, uses our prayers, and he brings his great purposes to pass through the means and the instrumentality of the intercession of the saints. Very well. There's our first principle. The apostle prays for these Ephesians. Come to the second principle. The way in which he prays, or if you like, even the method or the mode or the manner of his prayer. And here is something very striking and significant. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father. 
Now, there is no need to say that at that very moment when he was writing that, that the apostle literally went down on his knees. He may have done that even, I don't know. But what he is clearly saying is that he was praying for them. But, it is interesting to notice that this is the way in which he chooses to describe prayer. And you see, he didn't do it haphazardly, accidentally. He does it very deliberately. A man like this under divine inspiration uh, doesn't speak casually, doesn't say things accidentally. He very deliberately, when he comes to talk about himself praying, says, I bow my knees. Now, here is a matter again that is brimful of interest and of instruction. It holds us, doesn't it, face to face with the whole question of our posture in prayer. Here is a matter that has often troubled people. And it troubles people uh, in two diametrically opposed ways. It's always one extreme or the other. But the scripture is quite clear about this, that uh, sometimes men bow their knees. They kneel in prayer. But it's equally clear in its teaching that others stand in prayer, stood in prayer. And you'll find both methods are here mentioned in the scripture, and even others. But those are the two commonest of all. Now, here I say is something that must detain us for a moment. Because uh, this question can so easily be... uh, handled in a wrong and even in a foolish manner. There are always two extremes with regard to this question. The one extreme, of course, is formalism. And the other extreme is thoughtlessness or casualness. There are the two extremes. Formalism, in which we are virtually taught that unless we literally kneel, we are not praying at all. There are people who really believe that. There are people who really believe that no nonconformist ever prays in a church because they don't kneel. The kneeling to them is the vital thing. It's absolutely essential to them. They forget all about the standing and various other things. That's one extreme. And, of course, you can put into this self-same category all the forms of liturgy and things like that, and people who seem to think that these things are absolutely essential. Then, on the other side, I say you have those who assert the principle of liberty. Formalism and liberty are opposed, and rightly opposed. Yes, but you see, the whole principle of liberty can also be pressed too far. In which, in, and the result is that it becomes license, looseness, laxity, thoughtlessness, a manner that is totally and completely unworthy. So that surely the vital principle, the real point is this, that it isn't the posture or the attitude in and of itself, but what it represents and what it indicates, what it connotes. And here the principle is surely quite obvious. This is the indication of reverence. What the author of the epistle to the Hebrews there in the 12th chapter means when he talks about reverence and godly fear. 
It is indicative of an attitude of worship and of adoration and of praise. Now, it's quite obvious, isn't it, that you can mechanically drop on your knees when certain words are uttered and your heart may be far away. There are people whose reverence is entirely determined by the type of building they're in. If they're in a certain type of building, they walk softly and they speak in whispers. And then the moment they go out, they may be blaspheming and cursing. That's not reverence when they're in the building. It's simply that they're affected by a building. That's not the thing the scripture's interested in at all. There are men who may be most devout in their postures, in their crossing of themselves, and in all their attitudinizing. That is valueless unless it is truly an expression of the state of the heart. But, and this is what I want to emphasize, the state of the heart does express itself inevitably. And that is where this expression of the apostles is so important and is so interesting. Now, let me show you how this can be connected up with what we were considering last Sunday morning. There we were concerned about the apostles' magnificent and encouraging statement in whom we have boldness with access and confidence by the faith of him. How vital it is that that should always be coupled with I bow my knees. Why? Well, just to remind us of this, that boldness does not mean brazenness. That confidence does not mean, I beg your forgiveness for the term, that confidence does not mean cocksureness. And how essential it is that this should be emphasized. Boldness at the throne of grace is not brazenness. Confidence isn't cheek. Why am I emphasizing it? Well, I'll tell you. There are those who seem to think that it is the hallmark of spirituality and of assurance of salvation that they pray to God with a boldness and with an easy, glib familiarity, which is an utter denial of what is taught here and what indeed is taught in the whole of the Scripture. You know the type of person who thinks that if you really want to prove how utterly spiritual you are, you're very businesslike in your prayers. You just offer brief petitions. These kind of telegraphic petitions. You see, you're so, uh, you're so assured of your position before God. Uh, uh, you, you don't have the trembling and the fearfulness of the man who's doubtful. And you don't have to pray and worship first. You just, because you have boldness and access with confidence, you go in and you make your request known. I've often noticed this, alas, in conferences, even amongst evangelical people. The prayer meeting often takes these, this form. The people come forward and they give a list of the things that should be prayed for. The prayer requests, as it were. The list of prayer requests is read out and then the chairman says, well now let's get busy, let's get to prayer. And then they get up one after another and they just offer up petitions about this or that particular problem. I have been in such prayer meetings where I do not hesitate to assert that there has been no worship whatsoever. God has not been worshipped. He has not been praised. He has not been adored. He hasn't even been thanked. He hasn't been addressed in all his majesty and his glory. There's been no bowing of the knees. 
Many were perhaps literally on their knees, but their spirits were not bound. All taken for granted. Now that's the thing that this phrase seems to me to correct so drastically. So that far from being a sign of spirituality, that indeed becomes the very reverse, doesn't it? It's ignorance of Scripture. It is ignorance of God. If ever a man knew God, and if ever a man knew the way into God's presence, it was this mighty apostle. And yet, you see, he bows his knees. He knows whom he's approaching. He's not on terms of glib familiarity with God. Boldness and access with confidence, yes, but accompanied by reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's remember the true interpretation of that verse we were considering last Sunday then, which is simply this, that you're free from a craven fear. You know the grounds of your standing. You know you have your access and your entree, but that doesn't mean that you can walk boldly with chest forward, as it were, into the presence of Almighty God. No, no. You are humbly aware of your great privilege. You know you've got your access. But you do remember that it is access into the presence of the living God in all his glory and his almightiness. I bow my knees. Worship, adoration, praise. And we must never proceed to our particular petitions Unless we have first worshipped and praised and thanked God and submitted ourselves utterly and entirely to him. Let me say just a word about this little word, unto. I bow my knees, he says, unto. It's a very expressive word. It means facing. It means, if you like, face to face. He bows his knees in order to come face to face with God. And you see, the moment you realize that prayer really means coming face to face with God, you're bound to bend your knees. As Isaiah reminds us, when he had the vision, he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. John sees something and he falls to the ground as one dead. My dear friends, there'd be no need for this sort of exhortation I'm indulging in this morning if we all had some real conception of God, if we just had some glimpse of him, as I, as I say, by faith, we'd automatically humble ourselves and bow before him. It is unto the Father, face to face with God. Oh, let's thank God again for this. Wherever we may be, whatever our circumstances, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, you can always come face to face with God. We all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, says the same apostle to the Corinthians. There it is. He comes face to face with God. Very well, let me come to the last point that I want to emphasize this morning. His description here of God, the one unto whom he comes, thus 
humbled in spirit and bowing in his heart. You notice that he says he comes to the Father of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, the authorized version has the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The other versions haven't got it. That is purely a question of textual criticism which doesn't affect the meaning to the slightest extent. The apostle has already made it abundantly clear that he is only our Father in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of the old manuscripts have it, some haven't. I say it doesn't change the meaning. Very well, we don't stay with that. But we do have to look at verse 15 because it's a most interesting statement. Of whom? Which really means after whom? Or if you prefer it, from whom? Then there is this other question in dispute. Of whom, says the authorized, the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The other translations have, of whom or from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. Now then, what difference does this make? Well, again, of course, in the final analysis, it doesn't make any difference at all, but your particular interpretation does vary with which of these two translations or renderings you adopt. Take that uh, possible translation, of whom or from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. What does that mean? Well, they say it means this. They say a family means belonging to a common stock. That is the meaning of the word family in and of itself. Or it may mean a tribe or a class or a nation. Now, every family has a family name. The family name comes from some original father. The tribes of Israel, you see. They all took their names from a particular father, a particular man. The family and lineage of David, our Lord, came from after the flesh. Of the seed of David, according to the flesh, he belongs to David's family. Families get their names from a father. All groups are given their names from some origin like that. Some person, someone who first established or who headed up the group or the class or the division of the society. And so, according to that interpretation, what the apostle is saying here is this. That all these uh, distinctions and divisions into families and tribes and groups and nations and so on, which all acknowledge some earthly leader or earthly father, these are all but pale reflections of the fact that God is the father of all. He is the father of all families, the father of every family. He is the one from whom every subsidiary parenthood or fatherhood is derived Ultimately, therefore, he is the father of all. And you notice that he says not only on earth, but also in heaven. Every family in heaven and on earth. What do you mean by in heaven? Well, they say it means this. The apostle has been talking there in the 10th verse. He says unto the intent that now, unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. 
And indeed, in the first chapter, he's been talking still more in detail about them. He says that Christ is above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. Principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, and so on. There are groups in heaven. The angels are divided into angels and archangels and various other subdivisions. They are divided into groups, families, Tribes, as it were, and here they say the apostle is saying that not only does every earthly fatherhood and nation and tribe and division ultimately derive from the fatherhood of God, even the groupings in heaven are all under this universal fatherhood. Indeed, they say, doesn't the Old Testament refer to the angels as the sons of God? They are described as the sons of God. So in that sense, they are the children of God and God is their father. What are we to say to that exposition? Well, we can say this, that it's perfectly true. But it is true only in one sense. It is true in, sen in the sense that God in that way is the creator of all. That is what the Apostle Paul means when he preaches in Athens. You'll find it in, in uh, Acts 17. He says, we are all his offspring. The whole world is in that sense the offspring of God. He is the Father in the sense that he is the creator of all. And therefore, as long as you bear that in mind, that God is Father in the sense that he is the creator of all, these beings on earth and in heaven, well, that explanation and exposition is perfectly legitimate and it is perfectly true. And yet for myself, I don't accept it here and I don't adopt it for this reason, that it doesn't seem to me to enter into the context and uh, for the apostle to say that would be to drag in something that at this particular point seems to me to be quite meaningless. Our uh, section for this cause takes us back to chapter 2. And there I think we are given the key to the explanation of what he means here. For in verse 18 in chapter 2 I read this. For through him, through Christ, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. There's our Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saint and of the household of God, the family of God. Very well, you see, there are the two terms, the father and the family, the household. And surely, therefore, what the apostle is really saying is this, that God is the father of the whole family. What family? The family of the redeemed. The family of the redeemed, some of them are in heaven already, some of them are still on earth, but they're the same family. In other words, I am suggesting that the apostle is saying here precisely what the author of the epistle to the Hebrews says in the twelfth chapter. You remember we read it at the beginning, he says, you have not come to the mount that cannot be touched. Where have you come then? You, he says, have come to the city of God. You have come to this great church universal. That is where you belong. You are come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and so on. That's what he said. He says, I'm going to pray on your behalf. To whom? 
to the one who is saying, God, the Father of all, your Father now, being that you've come into the church, as well as my Father. He's the Father of all of us. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile, no longer barbarian nor Scythian, no longer bond nor free, no longer male nor female. You are no longer afar off, you have been made nigh. It links straight up with the end of chapter 2. And I think he put it in that form in order to teach them this. Don't think of yourselves any longer, he says, as Gentiles. Think of yourselves now as the children of God, as belonging to the great family. This is the end of my preaching to you. This is the wonderful thing that has happened to you, that you have now been made members of the household of God, fellow heirs with the Jews, members of the same body, partakers of the same promises. You've been brought into the great family of God. And oh, is there anything more precious for us ever to realize than this? You may be unknown by the world. You may be insignificant. You may feel that you're forgotten, that no one knows anything about you. It may be true. But my friend, if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you belong to God. You're in his family. And I assure you that your father has got his eye upon you. Nothing can happen to you without him and without his permission. The hairs of your head are all numbered. You're as much his child as the greatest saint, the mightiest apostle that's ever lived. There is only one family, the whole family. And he is the father of the whole family. The church triumphant as well as the church militant. We all have this access. And here this great brother... This mighty older brother that had so advanced in knowledge is telling his humble brethren, his young brothers there in Ephesus, I'm going to our father on your behalf and I'm going to ask him to do certain things for you. And may I leave you with this final word. We belong to this family, this whole family. Let us never forget it, I say, in the matter of prayer and in our right of access to God. But let us never forget it either in our conduct and in our behavior. We know what it is, don't we, to be proud of our families. The family name. We know what it is to be proud of a country. A class, a group, a school. Proud of the name. Very well, my friends. As Christians, the name that is on us is the name of God, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. No longer the family of David, no longer the tribe of this or that, no longer this country or that country, this class, that class, this group, that group, no, no. The family name which I claim is the name of God. And I am to live in this world as one who represents the family, as one who represents the Father. His name is on me. May it never be besmirched.
May men never think meanly of him and his name because of what they see in me. May God therefore open our eyes to the privileges of the name that is on us and also to the high and in many ways the dread responsibility of having upon us the name of God.